nothing. This is great. I got a few more announcements. Um, we are looking for volunteers. That's first and foremost. We need uh, 20 of you guys, and uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. It's a great opportunity to get involved and serve. Otherwise, it's going to be me uh, taking the tickets and running and doing rock climbing and everything. I'll do it, but I'd like some help. So be sure to sign up for that. You can sign up via our, uh, the Soundhouse app or on soundhousechurch.com. You can also find me and say I'd like to volunteer. I'll find you. Um, also, uh, Christy is a great person to approach about that as well. We're going to have a lot of candy, so even if you cannot volunteer, we are going to be going through a lot of candy. So bring a lot of candy. You can give it to me personally. Or you can drop it off in the back. Or you can bring it to me personally. Um, now, uh, big surprise, guys. We have the big fall festival coming next Sunday uh, from 1130 to 1.30. For those of you who cannot volunteer, we need 20 of you. Um, it's going to include a rock wall, giant inflatable slide, carnival games, and more. Be sure to come check that out. Bring the family. Bring yourself. And uh, we're going to have TK Burgers as well. So be sure to do that. We have postcards in the back with more information on that. You can also take some. Take a bunch, tell your friends, volunteer. Grab one, and uh, we'll have more information for you about that as well. Approach me, approach Christy. Lastly, uh, we have our Women's Craft Night coming up, November uh, 4th. Uh, join us for a fantastic night of that. I won't be there, uh, but again, Women's Craft Night. From 6 p.m. to 7.30 p.m., we'll be creating Christmas crafts for your home or to give to others. So be sure to check that out. It's going to be a fantastic time for fellowship, dessert, and crafting. Uh, limited, limited quantities of each craft are available. So sign up today. Again, you can approach Christy about that. Now to Ryan. Thanks, Tyler. Oh, man. Okay, he can do announcements again. I like you. You're good. You're good. Um, I, hey, before I get started into the message, uh, oh, this is last week's sermon. Okay. Before I get uh, started into the message, I just wanted to take a moment on something really, really cool that's been happening within our church. It's been, it's been a, a long process uh, to get to the point of where we're at today, but we're really, really excited to announce this. I wanted to ask two of our elders to come up and share right now, Guy King, and where is Larry? Where are you, Larry? Okay. Yeah, Larry, you've got to come up as well. And they're going to kind of walk you through a little bit of what we've been up to as elders and as a church, and, um, and then uh, kind of give an explanation of where we're going, what we're doing, and uh, kind of uh, leading us into this next part of the service. I will be up after you guys to do a sermon, and I have three pages of notes, so uh, Larry, don't dilly-dally. <laughs> we, we were worried to give Larry the microphone. You gotta remember, it's only taken me eight months to get back behind your mic. So. <laughs> uh, my name is Guy King. We are Larry and I are really excited about being up here. We've been working on this for the last number of months. And uh, part of the beauty for us is that uh, I've had a chance to get to know Larry really well and, and John is on our board. And just the connection that we have been able to make has been really fun. And to be a part of this is totally, totally exciting for us. Yeah. How many volunteers did you need? I thought I heard that once or twice. Yeah. I think it's one place. Real curious, how many of you guys were down at the Sound House before they moved up here when they were meeting in the park? The reason I ask that is this. I was down there yesterday when uh, Nolikin had a reunion down there yesterday, right after the rain. And if you were the good news is it's the same location. It's a great view from down there. But remember all the setup and teardown that you guys had to do? A lot of work went into that every week, right? Well, we're kind of in the same situation here. Like I was saying about eight months ago, we just kind of that you really, really, really want to meet are Dan Parts 
Mike Taylor, John Brakeway, he's outside, I believe, Mike Peters, and of course, Mike. And we're the guys that are kind of, for lack of a better word, overseers, and kind of figuring out what's going to go on. But I kind of figured out that it was like this. If we don't have visions, and we're not dreaming big, things just don't happen. So this is kind of a, an outbreak into a, uh, a planned, continuing legacy and building out together. So I got a quick story to tell you. Sorry, Ryan. <laughs> Let's get, we'll get back to you. Go ahead, just have a seat, Ryan. Thank you for bringing up the water. a service here and during that time downstairs somebody plugged in a coffee pot and ran the microwave together at the same time and power blew out up here in the sanctuary. So all the electrical instruments, everything was down. So that service quickly changed into an acoustic service. So we've known all along that we did have an electrical issue here. The problem was, where do you start? Where do you stop? And Chad, as you've kind of found out, the beginning with it is Edison. And Edison, to get them moving, is really quite an exercise. If you can imagine this, this entire campus being driven by an electrical service, biggest some of your houses. It's really needed an upgrade for a long time. So that's part of what we're moving on to do, is to propose, not propose, it's happening. We are getting an upgrade to the electrical. So that's part of what we're here to help and announce to you guys today. The second thing we're going to do is grab a graphic for that. Ladies, the really good news is this. We're going to be upgrading the restrooms. <laughs> Isn't that one of your favorite things to do is walk over there and stand in line trying to get in? So that, that is part of what's happening also. Uh, there has been a vision that's been kind of driving all this to, to get us going. And the vision is that uh, God has some amazing things to do. done is, as a church, Soundhouse had that vision to uh, prepare for someday, somehow, some way, there was going to be a future home of Soundhouse Church. Well, this is that home. So we're taking some, excuse me, some of that money that was prepared and set aside for that to invest in some of the things that we're doing. And then on top of that, out of the blue, pops in another generous donation of around 20000 bucks to get the uh, children's work and some other stuff going out there. So there's some preparation and some seed work that's been done to get this thing planted. So here's the challenging part. The challenging part is to invite you 
and us to participate in getting the balance of what we're looking for to keep this thing moving forward. Anybody remodeled the house recently? Anybody working on their garage recently? Hi, Rick. <laughs> you know it's not going to be cheap, right? And we have some money. We are actually a little over halfway to where we need to be. So we're asking you to participate in this. At your convenience, at your willingness, you know, think, pray about it, talk, you know, figure out what you can do, if you can do. Um, there's going to be a posting that's going to come up on the website, which implies that we all have computers, right? And we know how to turn them on. <laughs> so just kind of look at that out what's going on. You'll get to see some of the, the thoughts and plans of what we have for, for happening. Um, I don't know. It so the bottom line is going to be that um, we've already started out with the money from what Soundhouse has saved by your generous donations over the years by a great gift of 20000 Bottom line is we're trying to raise 120, so that leaves 50. That was $50,000 for us to come up with, which in today's world is seems like a lot of money, but I think it's doable. I think if we find a way to do this, uh, that's just the first phase of what we want to do to make this thing a great place for this place to be a place that we can feel good about and be able to, to bring more people into these seats and to do things for our children. So, uh, so the bottom line is $50,000 is what we're trying to raise. Uh, it starts, you'll see stuff starting to happen here in December. Uh, the the, the, the parking is going to start November 14th, go all the way through December 31st. You'll see it on the website. You won't see us again probably, I think, most likely Ryan's going to say no to us. No, but, uh, that's <laughs> not true. See, you'll see other, other uh, members of the church coming up here and talking about it as the process goes along. So uh, we're just really excited about this. Yeah, very much so. And pretty much I can guarantee that after today you won't see me again. So. As Ryan was uh, kind of leading us up to over the past series, you know, it, it's time for us to thrive, to come out as a community, to come out as a great church for God's kingdom. So here's our opportunity to, to blow into that and, and give it, and get it going. Thank you very much. What, what, why don't we pray? Because I'll just pray. God, we are so grateful for the blessings you give us every day. One of those huge blessings is the combination of these two churches coming together this last year and, and becoming something special for your kingdom. And we are grateful for the opportunity that we have had to be a family. And uh, we're grateful for this opportunity to make this a, uh, an even better uh, facility and a better place for us to join together as a family. So we pray for this. We pray that uh, God, whatever we do, that we honor you and everything we try to accomplish here is uh, for the better of your kingdom and, and uh, the better of this church. And God, we pray for this as we go along, and we say these things in Christ's name. Thank you, Larry and Guy. You are welcome back up here next year. <clears throat> uh, just real quick to uh, 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 also mention is that Every uh, week for the next three weeks, we're going to have a different set of elders. Just so I think our church becomes more acquainted with our elders and, and hearing from them, hearing the vision that we came up with as a team and really feel like this is where God wants us to go and, and to do. And, um, and then just kind of continue to reiterate the fact. And actually, the, the, the person who uh, even gave that first donation, they would always say this to me. Whenever I would get really concerned about, like, are we, are we going to make it? Are we going to be okay um, as a church for years? And he'd say, hey, we're, we're going we're to lift this thing together. And that's been the way it's always been. And so there's no doubt that we will get to where we want to go. Um, we will see tons of activity. You'll see things already starting to happen here in November. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of ways to volunteer, a lot of ways to jump in. Um, it will cut costs, but it also will kind of allow us all to be a part of this all together in many different ways. And so, uh, yeah, we're excited about it. We're really happy, especially about those bathrooms, right? <laughs> Amen. That is thriving. 
<laughs> I guess. And so um, uh, last thing, too, is you should know is that this is what we know right now to be phase one of a three-phase process. So uh, good things will be coming for years, and we will kind of bring those along as we're ready for the next phase. We want to do it extremely responsible, be very good stewards, and make sure that no one's really left behind in what we're doing. And so um, I know they just pray, but I'm definitely going to pray because I need to pray for what God wants me really ultimately, I feel, to say today. So, God, we love you and we thank you. God, thank you for what you're doing within the church, what you've been doing. And, God, honestly, what you've been doing within this church for 100 years next year. And, God, where we're at now, continuing the legacy. But, God, today, as we hear your word, an old teaching and a famous teaching, but, God, help us see this in a way maybe we haven't seen before. Open up our hearts, open up our minds, God, to hear your word and come alive in us. Inspire us, God, to something different, something new. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to get right to it. I titled this message, Neighboring Like Jesus. It's a very, very cute, simple phrase, but it has a hammer-like effect on our faith. It's uh, neighboring like Jesus, and the reason I put it this way is because if there was a neighbor, a good neighbor, it was Jesus. The way he operated, what he did, and I want you to forget the way that we think of neighbor now. You know, the person that lets their dog bark all night, you know, and you're like, oh my gosh, did somebody write a letter? Right, right. The person who leaves their floodlights on. I'm literally describing my neighbors. <laughs> so I have to black out my shades. Forget about the traditional neighbor. And, and there are lots of wonderful examples, of course, neighbors. Just, just remember, when Jesus talks about a neighbor, he's not talking about your neighbor. He's a part of your neighbor as far as the sphere he's talking about, but it's so much greater than that. My tagline, it'll be up on the screen the entire time so we know the focus that we're going is the inescapable truth for every Christ follower. And I wanted it said this way. It's inescapable. You cannot avoid this truth of every Christian follower. It must be intrinsic in who we are. It, it, it has to be the way we walk, what we do, and how we live is this neighboring like Jesus. It's a fact of the kingdom that cannot be avoided or should not be avoided. Um, the reason I put truth, and I think it's, there are these non-negotiable truths we all know, right? From a very young age, you are taught very specific truths. Like this first one. Put this first one up here. Never do that right? Never do that, right? The memes on the, that photo alone, terrible, but still, you think about it, that, that is what you just, every parent is thinking of, thank goodness they made these little guards now, but back in the day, it was a constant like, will my child live today situation? We taught that. It's a non-negotiable. You do not put knives in the uh, outlet, right? How about putting your hand over the stove, right? Never. <laughs> Don't put your hand on the stove. And it's a constant thing that you have to teach. Like, you do this, this will be bad. And sometimes they got to learn it, and it happens, and then they learn quickly. How about this? Don't go by the pool if you cannot swim. This is a non-negotiable truth. This is something you must not do. Uh, I love that photo because it's very ironic, pool safety, while she plays by the pool with no parent. But do not go into the pool as badly as you want to until you can swim. My son Jackson was very, very like brave as a young boy. He, we uh, had a pool, and it had concrete all the way around it. And he would ride his little tricycle, and we'd be like, you cannot ride your tricycle around the pool. And he would just go around and around, and he would sometimes, like, skim the edge, and his tire would just go off like a chariot, you know what I mean? And, and then all of a sudden, one day, we were, Ann and I were, I think we were in our room, and my daughter, who is now 16, she uh, came in. She goes, I just saved Jackson's life. And we were like, what, what happened? 
<laughs> he literally crashed and jumped his tricycle into the pool. He was two and sank to the bottom. And my daughter had to jump in, get him, who she could barely swim, got him up to the top. We had no idea any of this was happening. And he got out and he was crying. She was feeling like a hero. We were feeling like terrible parents. You know the whole scenario, right? And it, it's just like, it's one of those things like, you do not go by the pool. It's a non-negotiable. Things start to change, though, when you deal with these non-negotiables, these consequences. And then it changes, if we just look at children, when we talk about sharing. Share with others. And we don't like doing that. It's like, we teach it like it's a non-negotiable. We teach it like it's truth. But I think our kids also watch us and say, are you also doing this as well? I know you're not touching the stove. I know you're not jumping into water you can't swim in. I know you're not putting electrical outlets in there, but they can watch you not do that. But then, are we sharing with others? Do we look to help the other? And this becomes, I don't know, I was thinking about it a lot, is this a value or truth? We teach it like it's a truth. But... We also walk it out like it's a value, but a value that may be more of a suggestion. And I think when it comes to truths, especially kingdom truths, when Jesus is teaching some of these things, he's not teaching a value. He's, he's, he's not teaching a suggestion. He's teaching a truth. And you have to wonder, what's the difference? Because when you see something as maybe a suggestion or a good behavior change, you can maybe even see like, well, if I don't do it, I won't die. And so it's easy then to, when we even looking at sharing with others to go, well, it's not gonna, I'm not gonna die if it doesn't happen. And so we can negotiate it. But in the kingdom, there's a very strong concept about being a neighbor that is non-negotiable with the kingdom. And I'm probably saying this as harsh as I think Jesus meant to say it. And it was written many times throughout the New Testament. But I would say this is that when you think about this, where people could take it as a suggestion or a good idea or a nice philosophy or, wow, that's really good and do it as much as you can. Or that's a nice value you hold. Jesus kind of didn't really necessarily always deal with the black and white in a way. He, the very clear, he kind of punched right about there, which is, what you think is suggestion or value, I'm going to teach you as truth, and you're missing it if you don't see it. That's where he spent a lot of his intellectual battles, was in that middle ground where someone could take a truth and change it to make it into a suggestion. You won't die, but will you really live is kind of where he spent his time. Galatians 5.25, if we live, meaning that if we live, meaning you have been resurrected from the dead. If you live, Jesus says, and this word specifically says, if you are alive, alive only by the Spirit, then let us keep in step with the Spirit. And that word keeping in step is interesting. It's, very, it's a military term. Paul uses it, and I kind of wondered always why. Because it's not the way of Jesus to be militaristic at all. It, but it was a word that needed to happen in a way of being in step with the Spirit, right? And if you look it up in this context specifically, it says walking in line by, walking by rule or with purpose. A walk in a way that conforms virtue. I, I liked it, and then I started kind of wanting to think about this a little bit more. What is exactly does that mean to be in step in this way? Why does he use this military word in this way? I was reading this research that was done by UCLA, and they wanted to know what's up with why the military all around the world and throughout history really focused on being in step in a march. What does that do to someone? So they started asking people, and they were asking soldiers, and they said, when you're marching, because marching's not a part of the battlefield, right? You're running, hunting, finding your position, but marching in training, marching in a parade, marching, what does that do for you psychologically? And I found it to be very interesting. It might help me understand why Paul says in step 
with the Spirit. Is because when they're marching, they said that, actually, when we're marching, we feel like we're, in a way, invincible. And when we're in marching, we're in step, we feel like so big when our enemy feels so small. And I was like, oh, that's very interesting. It does something psychologically to them when they're in march and in step with each other. They call it synchronized behavior. There's something about synchronized behavior that builds confidence. And so when they started looking at it, they said, if you, if, if you look at the same thing, it happens when you see a wave at a stadium or when you see dolphins jumping and they're twirling and they're in sync with each other. They said, actually, when dolphins are doing that, the ones that jump and that are in sync with each other, when they go up and fight other dolphins, which did you know dolphins do that? They will overtake those other dolphins that are unorganized and not, they're in chaos because these dolphins are continually jumping in their pods. They're in sync, which means they're in a synchronized behavior and therefore their enemies, if you will, seem so much smaller. And, and this is really interesting, too, when you look at the military, that in-step thing that they do, it, it, it helps them see their opponent as smaller. The, the, the struggle they're about ready to have is not as bad of a struggle, right? There's strength and there's optimism in what they do. They did this last study, and I thought it was fascinating. They took two people, and they did it multiple times, and they said, I, we want you to march in step together. So they're just walking down, marching in step together, two people. And when these two people finished it each time, they put up a picture of a mugshot of a very scary looking criminal. And they said, tell us and describe this criminal. And then they did the exact same thing with people who just kind of walked casually, just said, hey, we want you two just to walk over that way. And they walked in a natural way. And Almost on cue, every single person that marched in step together in the synchronized behavior described the criminal as shorter than what they were, less muscle mass than what they were, and their threat level was lower than the people who walked naturally. There's something about the synchronized behavior. Now when I look at what Paul is saying, when we are in step with the Spirit, when we are in line in marching order with the Spirit, there's a great confidence when we see a problem, it shrinks when we know we're in step with the Spirit. This is why Paul is saying this. He's saying you must be in step with the Spirit because if you're alive, you would be in step with the Spirit. It doesn't necessarily mean just follow the Spirit wherever He goes. Yes, and not only that. It means be in sync with the Spirit and there's great confidence. Your problems ahead of you, the world's issues shrink in, in your sight. Your sight literally changes. Being in step will change what you see when you're in sync with the Spirit. Now, the beautiful thing is as believers, when we're in step with the Spirit together, our problems even become smaller in what we think we're going to have to tackle as the church within the world. Um, there's a very interesting parable. You've heard it a million times. I want to read it to you in the light of what I just said about being in step with the Spirit literally changes what you see. It minimizes what we would consider things to run from, but scripturally we're called to run to them in the world. I'm calling this the parable of sight. It's not what it's called. It's called the parable of the Good Samaritan. But it's the parable of sight because three times in this passage, three different people saw, two acted and saw one way, and one saw and responded a different way. And I think there's something about this being in step with the Spirit that helps us neighbor like Jesus, seeing the way Jesus saw. Luke 10, 25, it should be up on the screen. And behold, a lawyer, now remember a lawyer at this time, is just someone who's an expert in the law. There wasn't civil law, there was religious law, they were both. So he was an expert in the law, right? And um, he stood up and he put him to test, meaning Jesus. He wanted to test him. Because he's thinking, I'm an expert in the law. Uh, you're just a rabbi. And so he pretty much feels very confident in the way he's going to engage this intellectual battle with Jesus. He says, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, 
what is written in the law. You should know. And he said, how do you read it, though? I love what Jesus is doing here. And he said to him, he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might, right? Now that, we probably see like, wow, that's kind of standard. That's not standard. He, out of all of the laws, he pulled this one out. The reason why, he's a very good lawyer. Because he knows that you, this is the most important thing you can possibly do is that there is only one God, right? This is in Deuteronomy. There's one God they acknowledge. And of that God, you give him everything. If there's one God, one only true God, then he gets everything that you have. But the reason is that you can't just say, I love you, God, because the only reason you can say, I love you, God, is because God loved you first. And so your I love you, God, is a response to God's love for you. And so he knows that the very next thing he's going to say is the right thing to say, which is to love my neighbor as myself. Because Yes, I love God, but I, he, I love him because he loves me. And to love God is to then love my neighbor as myself. Jesus was like, you're smart. You got this down, right? It's how we display our love for God, by loving our neighbor as ourselves. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Now, these Pharisees or these religious folks or like a lawyer here, they had a, a little bit of a problem because there were a lot of things that were wanting to define what a neighbor was. It's funny because I was reading all about this guy in this, uh, he's a little bit legendary in a way of the Pharisaical like way of, of living and teaching. Uh, is a guy named Akiba in, I don't even know if I'm even saying his name right, but he was born around the crucifixion, this teacher amongst the Pharisees. He was born around the crucifixion. He rose in the Pharisaical like, ranks, and he ultimately had a very prominent philosophy. And it was the prominence of knowing the word over everything else. But listen to what he was saying, and this is why the lawyer... All of this thinking was circulating around Jesus' time. It was percolating, but it took one guy to really take encapsulated and this is how he would state his philosophy and it became very prominent after Christ he said study of law is a higher rank than practicing it and that is where it had come to and Jesus is dealing with this with this lawyer the study of law is a higher rank than actually practicing it and Jesus is going to say that's actually not the higher rank the higher rank is practicing it but I get it. It's so much easier to study scripture and know it and cite it than practice it. No amens on that. <laughs> I get it. I fall into this myself. It's so much easier to, 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 to just study and read the word and feel really good about it. But citing it is one thing. Practicing it is another. And we cannot let ourselves let that be what dominates the way we act as a church, it has to be the opposite of that. So Jesus is about ready to kind of give them a little scolding in a way, or a schooling at least. Jesus said before this parable earlier to his disciples that the gospel is here to actually confound the wise. So the wiser we think we are, the more confounded we are. He says you must come like a child for this. And so he's going to show this man what this looks like. He said, but the guy goes on to verse 29. He des is desiring to justify himself and said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, there's a couple of things happening here culturally. Jesus has a, is an audience of just regular old folks. He's got some religious leaders there. He probably has some sinners there. Maybe a few Gentiles. There's a lot happening right here in this little crowd he's got. And he's like, I'm going to make you now reinforce the boundaries that our culture works off of Jesus. Who's my neighbor? At that time, culturally, there was very much separation. And the separation was good, especially for those in power. 
There was Gentile, there was Jew, there was priests, and there was the regular Israelite people. There was men, there was women, there was Samaritans, etc. They The boundaries were good for them. Their whole system worked off of those boundaries, and Jesus is about ready to destroy all of them with truth. And so he is, at one point, is just saying, listen, I'm hoping that you'll reinforce our social order here. Tell me the boundaries. Tell me who my neighbor is. Reinforce our position, our power, and our privilege. And I think in the way, the guy is saying, let me be clear, though, Jesus, the boundaries are going to remain right. I think that's what he's hoping for. And the people in the crowd are hoping for it. Everyone's hoping that we just know that we can define it because it's so much easier when we just say, well, the neighbor is the guy who lives next to you, whose dog barks all night and the lights are on. Try to love them more. And he just takes it in a whole different way. I get it. You know, we, we, think, we think things like this too. We want to reinforce the boundaries. We all know the rules. We know how they work. We want to be comfortable. We don't want to cross boundaries. Everybody pretty much understands the social order. So we, we, but Jesus is saying the church cannot work this way. It cannot work this way at all. It actually is contrary to what the kingdom is if we go by putting boundaries around our social order that Jesus is saying in a moment that everyone needs to be seen as God sees them. Everybody's happy though, right? No, wrong. Not everybody's happy. And he's hoping Jesus will do that. So Jesus replied to the man, he replied, and he gets, starts to tell this parable, a man. Now when Jesus does this, a certain man, a man, somebody, he doesn't put an identity to this person for a reason because and it's very, very w a wise way to tell a parable because he's allowing everybody to then place someone who they might identify with as the person, right? He doesn't do it in the rest of the story, but he does it here. The victim, the faceless person that every listener might go, oh, I can imagine so-and-so being victimized like that. So he says a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, it's, it's like a treacherous 17-mile trek with a 33-foot elevation change. And then, by the way, he goes through a very bad neighborhood, basically. And he fell amongst robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, which would be possible hero number one, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, saw him, he's passed by on the other side. Now, there's a lot of reason this priest could have done this. You know, when David set up the kingdom, he put out 24 different priestly orders. Twice a year, they would go into Jerusalem and go back to their town, and it was like, if I went to... The, the Holy Land now, I don't even know. If I, if I was Catholic in a way and I went to the, the Vatican and I came back and I met the Pope and I'm, and I'm describing everything, the church would be like, tell us about it. Back then it was like, you went to the temple. And the last thing I'm sure he wanted to do was to deal with this person and become unclean and have to then enter his town and say, oh, whoa, 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 guys, before I share everything, I've got to go through a cleansing process because I've become unclean. So he's, in a way, we could say maybe that's why he did it. Is that it was going to ruin his experience. We could say that. I don't know for sure. But he's culpable in this, though. He sees a man almost dying, dead, will die soon, and walks by. And so they're like, oh, wow, okay. Jesus is beaten up on the priest. Okay, so the audience is listening to this. They're like, get him, Jesus, right? And so likewise, the Levite, hero number two. Now, a Levite, they were in the religious order, but they served an interesting role too as well, is they collected the, the, the tithe and the giving, and they'd also give it to the priest as well. So we can imagine that he's on his way. We don't know why he would be on his way, but he's on his way. And he has the resources with him, to help those in need. But he also, in the same way, when came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. And I think people know what's going on. See, 
this was a very uh, common way of telling a parable. It was like a, it was called a, a series of three story. So bad example, bad example, good example, right? And so they're all sitting here. This is a total clergy fail story. And the hero of the story is going to be the regular old Israelite. And he's going to say, you know who's the salt of the earth? You people, not the religious order. And I think they're just waiting for it. And then he says, but a Samaritan. And I think this is where everybody who's hearing becomes frustrated with this story. But a Samaritan, because now he's broken every single social order that they have. Everybody has a little piece of one where they all fit in the pie, and Jesus then destroys it all with a Samaritan. A Samaritan was a sworn enemy. They basically, in their minds, are people who are half of them as a people, taken against their will, left in a foreign land, raised in a certain way, and developed their own temple worship system, everything that somewhat kind of mirrored theirs. They were an abomination to these people. There was a saying that if you go even across into Sumerian land, you walk and you dust the sand, the sand off your feet, and so you don't even bring their sand into our land. They hated them. Everyone listening hated them. And the Samaritans hated them as well. And it says, a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and then he saw him and had compassion on him. He went to him. So he didn't just see. He went to him. He bound up his wounds, pouring oil and wine, oil for the bruises, keep him not so he doesn't dry out, and wine for disinfectant. And then he set him on his own animal, and he brought him to the inn to took care of him. This guy's on a business trip. You know when you're on your way into work and you see someone outside their car and they, and they ran out of gas and, and they got a little thing and you're like, but I got to go. I mean, this is what's happening. I'll never forget the time that uh, we watched a guy on a motorcycle get hit right in front of my wife and I, flew over the car, went on the street, laid in the street. I pulled my car over to the side, and I'm dragging him off the street, and cars are swerving around us as I'm dragging this guy off the street. And I'm like, are you kidding me? I parked my car on the side of the road. One guy was in such a hurry because of the line. He went around, almost hit us, then hit my car, and then, and then pulled over, and then I did get the ticket because I parked illegally. And I was like, really, officer? And he was like, I'm sorry. It, it, some, we have our own reasons for why we pass need, right? We, ha we do. We do it all the time. I've done it. But Jesus is saying, what, what, what would stop us? Would it be our compassion? Are we seeing something that we need to see differently? And so it goes on. And, he, and the, verse 35, the next day he took two denarii, which is about several hundred dollars for us, gave them to the innkeeper and said, take care of them. And uh, whatever you spend, I'll repay you when I come back. And he, then he says, remember, Jesus was asked the question, who's his neighbor? And then Jesus now with this parable flips it back to him and said, right, which of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man? And now he has to answer something he did not want to answer. And he was hoping Jesus would maintain the status quo. And he said, the one wouldn't even mention that he's a Samaritan. The one who showed mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. They saw, but they didn't see in this story. This is why I think it's a, a, a parable about sight. They saw, but they didn't see. I don't know what the reasons are. But he's pointing this out for a reason. And he's saying, like the Samaritan, he saw with different eyes, right? He's in a land that he's hated, and he sees someone who's probably a person who hates him, but he saw with different eyes. I was listening to this uh, professor at uh, Dallas Theological Seminary, and he said this. I thought it was an interesting phrase. He said, what you see is who you are. I didn't like that statement when he said it. What you see is actually who you are. No matter what, like if you're a painter and you walk into my house, you're going to automatically just be thinking, yeah, you should have done some things differently here, right? If you're a mechanic and you get in my car, you're going to be like, 
Instantly, what's that noise? I hear a noise, I hear a noise, right? We're going, it's what we are in a way. It's, 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 it's what we see. Guy and Larry, both coaches of sports, when Guy watches basketball, especially at a youth level age, I know that when you see somebody shoot, you're not just thinking, good for them. You're thinking, ah, oh, the form's a little off, or oh, yeah, his elevation's right, his timing's perfect, right? He's squared up, everything's good. Larry, same way when you see somebody pitch, you don't just go like, wow, he got it to the guy with the mitt. You're thinking like all the other, I don't know baseball, all the other things Larry would think about. You see it differently because it's who you are and therefore you see differently. And Jesus is saying, are we seeing differently? Because what you see when you see need is who you are. And that's chilling when we think about it. I'll just go really fast and I'll finish. The parable I think ultimately shatters religious quid pro quo. Remember during the impeachment times, quid pro quo, quid pro It shatters the religious quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. Woo, why do we even have that word? Give me something for something, okay? Why do we say that? I think neighboring like Jesus, it, it, it blinds us to class. Gender, race, religion, region, right? Neighboring is defined ultimately, I think, in this way, actively, not passively. We actively are looking to see our neighbor. It blinds us to all the things that want to maintain a social order and jesus came to break all of that down and say listen see people as they should be seen saint ignatius Loyola, uh, uh saint in the 1500s crazy lifestyle got changed amazing story by the way but he said this in god's eyes our words have only the value of our actions Ooh, this guy dedicated his entire life to the mission he, 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 he was born in a castle. He lived the rest of his life dedicated, lived in caves. I, I respect what he said. I would say James makes it even more clear, and this will be my last passage. I read this in a commentary about this section in James, and I had to read it. James particularly targets, however, those uh, are those of his readers who may understand these things theoretically, but whose practice does not match their profession and here's the passage james 2 14 what good is it my brother if someone says he has faith but does not have works can that faith save him that's a good question if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and the one says to him go in peace be warm and be and, and filled without giving them the thing they needed for their body what good is that now when he says can that faith save you it's not a question of works based theology here james is ultimately saying is is that faith when there's not any action behind it does their faith their actions tell me what they believe he says, so also faith it's, uh, by itself does not have works, it's dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. It's, it, this is so important to try to maybe absorb into our heart is that our actions display what we believe. Your deeds, they don't replace faith. They testify to your faith. It's testifying to what you believe. Now, I'm not saying you need to walk around and be like Mother Teresa. I will say, though, that the Samaritan story should really ultimately convict us and really maybe change some of the ways we think about the way we classify. Jesus was not interested in that, nor will he ever be interested in that. Right? I'll say this. You guys can... Um, Maybe just get in the mindset of closing here in reflection. But I can't leave you without saying, how do I neighbor like Jesus then? And I'll just tell you right now, you, you have to stop justifying in action. You have to stop justifying. You cannot give yourself a pass. You can't. I, these are hard words. I don't even like hearing myself say them, but I, I think I need to hear them as well. We cannot justify our inaction because guess what? God's not buying it. We might 
think he is, but he's not. You cannot justify our inaction. We have to purge the stereotypes, judgments, and categorize. And this is what we're going to learn from that story. If you want a neighbor like Jesus, you've got to purge the stereotypes, the judgments, and the categorizing. You have to see need and meet it with mercy and love, and they must be together. You have to be able to see it, though. Stay in step with the Spirit, and you will watch the threat shrink when we're in step with the Spirit. Our boldness comes from that. When we are fighting need and problems within the world or all around us, practice what you profess. Oh, I hate this. Practice what you profess. But I do not want to ever be like that, thinking of that famous Pharisee of like, I put this higher than this. No, my practice of the word is more important than knowing the word. And I would say this, to finish out, is pray for discernment, strength, mercy, through love. Those are some things I believe from this story we can extract and take, and from also from James, that when we do these things, right, we will neighbor like Jesus. And we will see things happen that we probably would never believe would happen. But we have to see differently. Jesus said this famous phrase, and we can bow our heads. He said, want to live? <laughs> yeah. We'll lose the self-interest. That's essentially what he's saying. You want to live? Lose the self-interest. And you'll live. So when that liar asked him, how do I get eternal life? How do I live? He's like, I'll tell you how to live. Lose the self-interest. Let's bow our heads. God, we love you. God, we thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for an example like Jesus giving it to us so practically and just teaching us how to live. But God, we don't want to hold this as a suggestion. We don't want to hold it as a value and just something we can choose and not choose. God, we want to hold it as a truth of the kingdom that as a follower of Christ, we follow that. We want to be the good neighbor. It's like that old proverb I read, God, uh, uh, to, 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 have, to be a good neighbor to have a good neighbor, you must be a good neighbor, God. And I, I think it's so important for us as believers to um, get out of our boxes and get out of things that we tend to categorize in, even culturally, God. And we see people the way you are calling us to see people, God, that we really see because it will reflect who we are. And people will know that we are your disciples by the love that we have for one another. And so God, help us. Be in step with the Spirit, following in confidence that you are with us. That our response to you for loving us, God, is yes, we love you, but our response is by how we love others. That's how we show you how much we appreciate your love in our life. So God, help us as a church to be a church full of love, full of mercy, with eyes wide open like that Samaritan, looking and going to need. Prepare us, help us, give us strength, resources, God, whatever it needs, God. But we want to be your people and step with you, loving people the way you did. In Jesus' name, amen. Could you guys stand with me one last song?